0: Uh Derek reminded me that when, when we started we had this guy that looked like Hagrid. He was like this tall, had this giant beard, looked like he was thirty-five, I think he was eighteen. <laughs> yeah. Alright. Um down to business. We're going to be looking today and answering this question. And, you know, Derek didn't just take a break. He gave me probably the hardest part of the Bible to preach to you, which is this question, which is, why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Why do you have to go to the cross? And you might be thinking, this has nothing to do with me as a college student. And you're completely wrong. It has everything to do with you. And today we're going to try to flesh out what does it have to do with you? What does it matter that Jesus went to the cross? Is this not a man, you know, 2,000 years old? Well, let's answer this question. We're going to look today in Mark 8, 29, and 91. And just introducing to you this text, um, you know, Mark 8 is part of a larger section in Scripture. It's uh, Mark 8, 9, and 10. And in Mark 8, 9, and 10, three times Jesus prophes- prophesies. He says, I am going to go to the cross. And I'm going to go to the cross to die for your sins, to suffer in your place, and to be raised again so that you would have life. Three times He says it. And each time He says it, one of the disciples does something ridiculous. Peter rebukes Jesus. He says, you're not going to the cross, Jesus. That's what we're going to read today. Um, Mark 9, the disciples argue over who's the greatest. They say, well, okay, you're going to the cross, but who are you going to bring up to the top with you? And then in Mark 10, uh, 37, the sons of Zebedee ask Jesus to sit at His right hand, the right hand of Christ. He says, you have no idea what you're asking. And then in Mark 10, 45, He says, "Um, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So let's read together Mark 8, 29, 9, 1, and then we're going to pray for us, and then we'll begin. So starting in 29. He asked him, them, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Of Him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. And He said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, Lord, I just pray that You, by Your Spirit, would answer this question today of why You had to die for us. Lord, would You... Impress it into the hearts of those who hear Your Word today. Would You use my weak words to Your glory? And would You help us all to grow in knowledge and relationship of You? We pray this in Your name. Amen. So, you know, uh, I heard it mentioned that there's a lot of service opportunities here. And it's a good question to ask. You know, why do we serve? What drives us? Why are we in college? Why do we do the things we do? Why do we have the friends we have? What makes us tick? I have these in-laws, so I got married, my wife's right there, uh, like five and a half months ago, that's how old I am. I'm married now. And uh, my brother and sister-in-law adopted these beautiful newborn babies, these African-American babies. And they did foster to adopt. And foster to adopt is extremely service-oriented. I mean, it's, it's beyond adoption because the babies you can bring into your home, you can lose. They could go back to the family or they could go to a different family. And these little beautiful children that you could spend years with can be taken away from you. There's a self-denial that comes with foster to adopt. And it's something that um, you have to look past uh, your mere gain and what you would receive when you go to, to do something like foster to adopt. And it takes great, uh, great self-denial. And this is something that Jesus talks about in this passage. Now, we live in a world, and, and Jesus lived in a world where he called it an adulterous and sinful generation. I'm going to propose to you, we live in an extremely narcissistic world. There is probably two times you are this narcissistic. Okay, It's when you're a baby and when you're in college. And the reason is because your mind is focused on you. What am I going to do with my life? Where is my life heading? What is, what is in front of me? Who is my relationship with? What's going on in my own heart and soul? And Jesus, Jesus challenges that in us. He calls us to begin to look outward. And He calls us to an upside-down life. He calls us to a life not unto ourselves, but unto others. And He says that if you want to follow Him, if you want to be with Jesus, as He said to these disciples when they challenged Him, when they wanted to be great, when they looked at themselves, He says, if you want to be like Me, you need to take up your cross and follow Me. You need to take up your cross and follow Me. And if you have a head about you right now, you're going to say to yourself, "That sounds horrible." That sounds awful. Why would I ever want to be a Christian?" So we're going to answer why Jesus went to the cross uh, in three ways today. We're going to look through the text. Um, and this, these are three coat hooks I'm going to give you just to, if you're taking notes or thinking about it, to hang your hat on. And that's going to be the exchange of Christ, the example of Christ, and everlasting life in Christ. So the exchange of Christ, the example of Christ, and everlasting life in Christ. So let's look at the text. So, right in the beginning here, we have, you know, Peter uh, answers Jesus, and he says, you know, to Jesus, Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the Christ. And he says, uh, and, and Jesus responds to him, rightly. And he says to uh, to Peter, "This Christ who you say I am is going to suffer many things and be rejected and be killed." Now, I would love to have the time with you to go through all of the Old Testament and to show you how many references there are to these titles, son of man, the Christ, the one who would suffer. But I need you to I need you to walk with me in understanding that when Jesus, when Peter says, "You're the Christ," the way that should impact you is like the floor should drop out from under you. Because the Christ is the one who Peter was expecting to come for thousands of years to come and to rescue the Jews at that time from those who oppressed them, which would have been Rome. Thousands of years they waited for the Christ. The Christ being the Messiah, the one who would come save them, redeem them. It would be the Christ who would come and literally destroy the evil around them. Who would be like a governor and a king, like Derek said. Who would conquer sin and death and set them free. They waited for this. And so when Peter says, you're the Christ, if He's really the Christ, then When Jesus says the Christ is going to suffer and die, this is, for Peter, his mind has exploded. No, no, no. The Christ cannot suffer and die. What Savior? What King? How would you feel if your president said, I'm going to lead this country by dying? It sounds ridiculous. So Peter rebukes him. But if you think about it, that's equally ridiculous. Because if Peter believes it's the Christ, if he believes this is the Messiah that came to save him, and save all the Jews, then why not? Why would, why would that Christ not be able to say to Peter, this is how I am going to do it? More than this, Peter uh, misses this prophecy in Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant, where if you look in Isaiah 53, you'll read that there, the Messiah was going to come in the form of a servant, that He would suffer for man. And so when Jesus says, that he's going to suffer, and Peter rebukes him. Jesus is right to look at him and say, get behind me, Satan. Because you're not thinking about the things of God, you're thinking about the things of men. You see, we've come to this point in the history of redemption, the story that Derek's been telling you. He's used this language of, I hope you used this, I think you did, C, the CRRC, uh, the creation, the rebellion, the redemption and the rest, the restoration or the consummation. We're at that point where we re, we're reaching the redemption. We're reaching the point in time where God has made, has brought this plan about that He would redeem, that He would save the people from their sins. We're right at this moment. We're leading up to it as He goes to the cross. Now, there's a... There's a confusing part in this text and I want to take a, a moment to just show it to you where he, in verse 30 if you're reading carefully it says and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Okay? So why on earth is Jesus coming as the Messiah and saying shh don't tell anyone? Right? This is known uh, to theologians as the messianic secret. And the, what Jesus is doing is he's subverting. He's turning upside down the whole idea of what the Messiah would be of who God is, there is a uh, there's a quote uh, from I never use movie quotes i think it's a, I think it's a little lame, but this was so good I had to use it it's from House of Cards has anyone seen House of Cards? Okay a few of you um, House of Cards is about a power a, a president who comes to power who's completely corrupt, and the president is looking at the presidential priest in a Catholic church, and he says this to him, the president says this to the priest, thinking about Jesus, you can't love the people you kill. Why didn't he fight, looking at Jesus? Why did he allow himself to be sacrificed? I understand the Old Testament God, whose power is absolute, who rules through fear, but Him. And the priest looks at Jesus, and he says, it's not your job to determine what's just. It's not your place to choose the version of God you like best. Francis Underwood, the president, he looks at the crucifixion as Jesus hangs on the cross. He asks for a minute to pray. He looks at Jesus and he says, Love, that's what you're selling? I don't buy it. And he spits in the face of Jesus. in that moment, the cross falls on the ground and shatters. Friends, There's some hard truth we have to be confronted with today, and that's that Peter did not like the version of God he saw. A God who would come and suffer and die. What version of God do we believe in? Is it God who says who God is, or is it the God you want Him to be? This is probably one of the hardest truths we have to wrestle with because God is more compassionate, more loving, more gracious, more kind, more generous, more forgiving than you could ever imagine. But He, he is dealing with the sin of our hearts and this world and the brokenness, even the brokenness we prayed about today. It is far worse than you can, you can see. What version of God do you have? And is it the true God. Is it the God the Bible speaks about? Because the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the New Testament. Jesus came as God. He made Himself into the form of man. He humbled Himself so that He could be the servant of you and of those who were in His time. And that He would go to the cross and suffer and die for you for the sake of your sins and my sins to give us eternal life. So I'm telling you right out from the get-go, this is why He had to go to the cross. And Derek's been telling you this all along, that He had to go to the cross for you. Not only because He loved you, but because He had to deal with the sin of this world and the sin in your hearts. He doesn't leave it there. You see, God performed the most selfless act ever. He doesn't leave it there because He calls us then. He says, if you want to be with Me, then He calls us to selflessness. Not narcissism, but selflessness. And He calls us to be, to live as, as He lives. He is our example. So our example of Christ. Alright, let's keep reading. So verse 34. Calling to the crowd, calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He said to them, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake in the Gospels will save it. Alright, immediate paradox, right? If you save your life, you lose it. If you lose your life, you save it. First thing to notice here is He looks at the crowd. He's talking to Peter, and He looks at the crowd you know, commentators note this because he's, he's now addressing not just to the disciples, but those who might not believe in Him. He's saying, look, this message is for all of you. If you want life, if you want real, true life, this is how you're going to achieve it. And it's not through making everything about you and yourself. It's going to be through self-denial. And He says, if it's, it's going to look like this. You're going to deny yourself and you're going to take up your cross and follow Me. Now, if you look... Actually, you can't look because you don't have the Bible in front of you. But a little earlier in the passage, it says Jesus was with His disciples in the village of Caesarea Philippi. Okay, Caesarea Philippi is about 90 miles north of Jerusalem. And when He says, follow Me, by chapter 10, when He says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many, He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to the place where He would be crucified. So when He says, follow me, He's literally saying, follow me on this trek to my death. When He says, take up your cross, He's literally saying, come to the foot of the place where I'm going to be sacrificed for you and watch how much I love you. Follow me there. See what love I have for you. In the You know, the disciples have no idea what He's asking. Now, this is part of the Messianic secret. That they're still expecting the Savior who's going to come and be all-powerful and destroy everyone. But friends, if He destroyed everyone in that time, He would save no one. Because He needed to die for you and your sins in order that you would have life. And that is eternal life, but also life now. He gives us a, a paradoxical, a paradoxical understanding of what, how we should live. You know, the best illustration I can give you is, um, is probably your own mothers. You know, your mothers uh, decided to bring you into this world, um, and they gave you life, and you took everything from them. Honestly. Now, some of you have horrible mothers, and I'm gonna really be super sensitive to you. Maybe you have all terrible mothers, um, but in general, whatever, whatever your mothers did not—I guarantee you—your mothers did not count or even think about how hard it would be to raise you and the joy they had in having you. It was worth the sacrifice. It was worth the self-denial. It was worth the pain that it took to love you because they take joy in who you are. There's something attractive in this in other people. You watch it in people who, you ever met that person who just cares for someone really well, or someone who's who's so selfless they're always giving their time in one way or another, and you say, "Wow, there's something there's something life giving in that person." That's that's the kind of life we're talking about, life now and life to come. So I want you to think, you know, who in your life, who in your life is in need of you. Who did God place in your life? What areas of life do you think you can serve? And you know, my wife challenged me. and She said, that's why God gives you wives, I guess. Um, She said, well, you know, sometimes I feel like I can just do good so people will think good of me or so I can just be thought of as doing right. And that was such a good point because we're going to get at that question of motivation. If you're if you're following with me, now probably most of you, because you're at Pitt, are pretty high achievers and thinking, yeah, I could probably serve more. And you're you're in some dangerous waters because here's why: your ability to serve well, to love well, on your own, is futile. You will you are not able to serve the way Jesus served. You are not able to to die the death Jesus died. And so when He calls us to live the way He lived, I want to use this word of pattern. It's pattern imitation. If you go out from here and you try to be crucified for the sake of people, that is utter foolishness. Not that any of you would do it. But I want you to hear what I'm saying. is Jesus calls us to pattern the way He lived. And the way He lived was that He came not to be served, but to serve. And to give His life. As a ransom, an exchange for many. And he calls us for the same thing, but he calls us because of this. He says, I died for you, therefore you die for others. Your motivation to serve is born out of a love that God has for you, your motivation to be kind to a neighbor is born out of the motivation that, that God, when God came down and gave up his son for you, That is how how you go about service. That's how you you go about reaching out to people in the community. You love them because the Lord God has loved you. That is your motivation. And with that, with that you are able to serve. That's not by your willpower, but that's going to look like this. It's going to look like looking up to God and saying, Lord, if I'm able to do any good, Lord, work through me. By your power. That's how the apostles did it. That's how we're called to do it. Now, so we've, we've answered these questions of, you know, Jesus came as an exchange. He came as um, an example. He also came to give us eternal life. So verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes to the glory of His Father with the holy angels. He uses this language here of profit, gain, return. Almost, you know, You maybe who are more practical here are thinking, the profit gain in return of this is horrible. I'm going to give up my life for the sake of everyone else, be trampled on. And part of this is the question of what is life? What is a good life? What is true life? What is eternal life? In this word soul here, you know, you think of soul, and you probably think of Casper the ghost. Am I right? Yeah. Okay, the biblical version of how we understand soul is is the very it's the, the mind in the body. It's a psychosomatic union. It's the whole self. When they say the word soul, it's not just what's inside you, it's your very life. It's the whole being. And so when Jesus says, I come to give you life, and that whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will save it. To give you eternal life. That eternal life is not only life eternally, but it's eternal life now. It's a true life, and it's a good life. And it's, a, it's actually one of the most attractive lives you could live. Because when we answer this question of narcissism, what am I living for? You see it. You see it in your culture all the time. You see it in the constant partying and the drinking. You're constantly bombarded in your society now, in college, with postmodernism, relativism. You have a thousand things in front of you. What am I going to choose? What's true? You're going to all these different classes with all these different ideas, meeting all these different people. And what I want to encourage you is that there is truth. There is truth. And you need need to look around at this life and say, what is good? What is beautiful? What is right? What is just? And friends, cling to it. Cling to it. And I'll tell you the most beautiful thing there is. It's that someone would give up their life for you. There's no there's nothing more beautiful than that. Nothing. If you uh, I'm using a lot of parent illustrations, so I just realized that. If you have a workaholic father, you know, a workaholic father will ask that question, he'll say, you know, why why do I work so much? It's to give a good life to my children, right? And what do the children think? The children think, I I don't want you to work all the time. I don't need all the things. I want you. I want the Father. I want the Father. You can give me everything in the world. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? I want a good life. I want true life. I could be as poor as dirt, but if I have you, if I have that relationship, that I know that you are are there with me, that you you love me, I don't need your things. I need you. You know, part of this... R-U-F is to to show you that. To give you just a microcosm, the tiniest example of what a good life looks like. What it looks like to live in a community where you love each other. Where you pray for each other. Where you mourn with each other when something horrible happens. And so when Jesus says, I came to give you life, that life... Sorry. Sorry. That was anticlimactic. That life is... um... When Jesus said He came to give you life, that life is a life that is a beautiful life. And so that service, giving, which is born out out of Christ's love for you, is actually going to give you yourself life. Meaning. Purpose. A reason to live. A reason to care. Not only life now but life eternal. Because, look, you all don't think about these things, about death. You're in college. But these are good things to think about. What happens after I die? Is there a life after this? Jesus says yes to both. There's life now and there's a life to come. And I want you to have it. So we've talked about the exchange of Christ, the example of Christ, eternal life in Christ. And I, I want to end with this. Um, my brother and sister-in-law who adopted these babies, and I just got this news like three days ago, and it, it broke my heart. Um, we thought they were they were going to get to keep them. I spent two weeks, you know, with these kids, and I held them. They were teething. They had runny noses. Uh, they got me really sick, and I couldn't help but fall in love with them. I mean, they were just such beautiful little children. And these kids, um, they had their court hearing recently, and the court, the judge gave them custody to their seventy-five-year-old great aunt. And I don't want to, I don't want to put down that process, and I know that my God is with them, but it broke our hearts. And my sister-in-law. All the more. I mean I only spent two weeks with these kids and it breaks my heart. But my sister in law, you know, she as sad as she is and still is, she she wrote to us recently and she said, I do not regret for one moment not one moment the time I spent with those kids to love them. To God be the glory. My sister-in-law was able to say that because she, she herself has been loved. She, and she found life. Even that year that she spent with these babies, she found life in giving to them. To the point where she was able to even be hurt, to have them ripped away from her. And yet to still praise God. Friends, this is, this is the life that we have in Christ. Christ. It's an upside-down life. It's not, the, it's not what you're expecting, but it is the most beautiful life. It's the life that allowed the apostles to praise and sing to God in the midst of prison. It's, a, it's the life that allowed them to go to their very death and still praise Him. It's the most beautiful life, and it's a life that Jesus offers freely for you. So what kind of life do you want? You know, if you're a Christian, maybe this helps to shape your understanding of what it means to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian here, I want you to consider this an invitation. What kind of life are you after? What what kind of meaning do you want out of life? Consider this an invitation. Think about it. Talk with Derek. Meet with some of the leaders in this group. And... uh Let's pray. Lord Jesus,